10 best films of the year. I guess I will start. Uh, my number 10 uh, winner of my best actress and best adapted screenplay. Uh, it's The Lost Daughter. Huh. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I didn't expect much from this film at all, but it, I don't want to say it hit me, but it just, it, it did movie things that I want to see in a movie. I want to see in this kind of like minimalist, personal, one person focus thing. And mm. I, I talked in my initial review about how like it felt like Jesse Plemons is kind of overwhelming it, but like coming back to it, it does. Buckley. Yeah, just what I say. Plemons. Yeah, could you imagine? We're, this is not 2020, <laughs> Mario. Um, I thought like Jesse Buckley would kind of like I felt at first like maybe she was going to overwhelm it, but like coming back like those two work off each other so well, and Olivia Coleman still has such control of of Lita that um Lita, uh that that it just it it works on so many levels and it's such a minimal film and I guess I wasn't expecting so much coming off of like kindergarten teacher from Maggie Gyllenhaal, which she didn't she didn't direct our did she write she didn't no but it was but her it movie feels like her movie yeah. yeah but this feels this one has just so much focus and knows where to be at all times mm. and it knows how to propel its story so. yeah um it was it was a movie that was lingering for a long time for me and then, like we talk, like the stuff that we talked about um, on the list, just kind of, I don't know, it it held its, it like pushed me back, like it stiff armed me from getting close to it a little bit. Do you want to snake this? So I'll do nine, ten, and nine, and then you'll yeah, do nine, eight. Right. Okay. Then we have to stop at when we get to six. We have to stop so we can take each other's predictions. Oh, I know. Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> That'll be embarrassing. Um, <laughs> my number ten is Paul Schrader's the card, uh, the card counter. Um, it's a little movie. It's weird. I don't get it. It has two problematic performances in it from Tyler Sheridan and Tiffany Haddish. One is bad all the time, and one is sometimes really good and sometimes really bad. But it has this interesting cinematography, has this great fucking score, but at its central thing, its central... Ty Ty Sheridan. Ty Sheridan. What did I say, Tyler? Yeah, I think you you named the director of... um, I think he said Taylor Sheridan. I think I said Tyler Sher. I mixed them. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Ty Sheridan stinks. Um, people stop putting him in movies. Um, I don't think Tiffany Haddish was terrible. In she wasn't terrible, but sometimes she has a weird energy. Right, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. And it's like, just like your headphones. Yeah. They <laughs> but it has this amazing central uh, performance from Oscar Isaac. It has a really interesting completely minimalist almost non-existent performance from Willem Dafoe um, there as Gordo and I don't even really know what they do at the end but I love this movie because it leaves kind of like remember when First Reformed was like I'm, you know what I'm, how I'm going to end this movie I'm going to end it with a, I'm going to end it with Ethan Hawke wrapping himself in barbed wire and then him and Amanda Seyfried kissing while I just spin the camera he decides this one is not even about the ending because I think the ending is really kind of like you know with the fingers and stuff like that it's fine um I have no idea what happened what Gordo and um or what Willem Dafoe and Oscar Isaac got up to in that hallway of that house I have no idea something bad something bad happened I've got no fucking idea what it is and I think it's one of the reasons I kind of love these new Paul Schrader movies that he just has so, he's asking so many questions and he doesn't even have the wherewithal to answer them. 
He's just asking them. Yeah. And that's why these movies function more as like um, exploratory essays than they do real than they do as like narrative films. Yeah. But I like them like more for that. Um, or I, I find them so interesting for that. But again, and this is kind of talking about what we were talking about before, I saw this movie in theaters like after like a really shitty day of teaching and this movie like cleansed my life. Like of just like I went from the classroom to this and it was just like a, it was like a revelation. And it like reminded me that like I like doing this more than I like teaching sometimes you know what i mean or in the context that i was teaching that day um just like sitting in a movie and letting or you know what it reminded me of it i'm sorry i'm taking so long it reminded me that like um these kids are never going to know this experience or never going to know what this like a, a life like mine is like or even like what going to a movie alone and like experiencing something like the card counter is like what do you mean because they're just like they got their TikToks and they got their YouTubes and stuff like that, and they're just out. They'll get there though, but they're not gonna because they've got they don't want to get there. You don't know because you're not in it. I know because I'm talking to them every day about it, and they don't fucking give a shit. Now, like I also didn't give a shit about anything when I was that age. But you did because you were making movies. Yeah, but there's still kids that do care. It's, it's hard to find. See, but it's hard. There there are kids that do care, and I'm not saying that like those. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm not but saying... I still think it's it's just as rare because I think like. Going into college at that age, like, most of my contemporaries were like, fucking Call of Duty Modern Warfare 4. Yeah. You know, like, their their video games were their thing. Right. So that's, I mean, it's, I guess it's... And a, I think it's just a generation. But I still ex- think those people are there. But I think it's an expression of uh, of a different kind of... I because look at... What's his face? Um, he's been on the podcast. Chris? Chris? Yeah. Sure. Chris is, a, Chris is a rare one. But I think I think that is just rare from our generation on that's rare because there's so much other media to consume right but he's but I think the difference is that he's chosen I guess a similar media that we've chosen but like wherever a lot of other kids that I'm encountering and another thing I'm not even trying to hold them accountable for anything like that it was just in the moment it was just like they don't they just don't get it it was just fine my number nine is um, Max Lowe's Torn which you talked about before. It is a, a completely emotional experience. It is beautiful. It's about dads and kids and being dead um, on mountains. And then, like, how do I reconcile... How do I reconcile the facts of my existence in real time? It reminded me a little bit of Mind the Gap and how he's he chose to kind of insert himself, not just as, like, subject matter, but, like, in the context of making the documentary. So there was a lot of times when he'd be talking to his brothers or his mom where like she would be talking to him and so the camera a second camera would pan over to him and he would just be in fucking tears like trying to have this conversation about his dad just trying to like to work out why my dad like chose being dead on a mountain over like being home for my birthday so like the last thing that this guy did before he died was like went into a tibetan or i think it was tibet a tibetan um tea room wrote a letter painted a card to his son whose birthday he was going to miss because he was on the mountain mailed it to him went back to base camp hiked up the mountain then an avalanche fucking killed him you know what i mean and like that shit weighs heavy and it's a well-made very functional documentary that a lot like the movie it reminded me a lot a little bit in um that animated movie away that i talked about a couple years ago um 
where it's on its surface it's one thing, but if you just kind of look look a little deeper, be even beyond where the filmmaker's kind of asking you to, it, it like I don't know, it's like this a big emotional fucking hole. Um, and it closes a little bit. He tries to close it, but it never feels closed. Um, and it was a really powerful experience. And I recommend it's on Disney Plus now. Um, watch Torn and just feel really shitty about, like, I don't know. But also good, but also bad. And uh, so, and I, uh, because this is the last time I'm going to talk about Torn, probably. One of the uh, one of the amazing things because I, I haven't seen it. One of the amazing things about Torn is that we like could do a documentary. About he, it, I guess. Yeah, he talks to all these people that knew his dad, and the great part about it, and this is only great from like a filmmaking perspective, is that all these people are willing to talk about him, but they clearly don't want to do this, and they you could see it on their face and how they talk, and they're just like, and even so, he looks at footage that the one of the um, guys that was on the expedition that you know um when his father died like so two people died and a bunch of people lived and one of the guys that was filming that day lived and he has all this footage and he's like you don't want to watch this and like it's just very it's just very open and like emotional like that him this guy like because his son asked he's like i'll show it to you but he doesn't want to show it to him he doesn't want to watch it with him he doesn't even know how to talk about it and it's really interesting it's, and I don't even know if the guy, because it's a first-time filmmaker, I'm not even sure he knows why it's so interesting, but watching these people really struggle with talking about this subject matter is a, is kind of like a fascinating thing in documentary because most of the time when you do this stuff, these people are like have um, processed a certain amount of this information and can just talk about it or they've like they're in a certain amount of denial, which is like a mind the gap thing too in like one of the characters – in mind the gaps mom who just kind of like won't listen to like kind of the things that he's saying um all these people know what happened all these people kind of know why he wants to make this documentary and it's just hard for them it's hard for everybody it's well, an interesting movie about like the facts of your life being really difficult and then not being just yours they're like they're the facts of your life kind of belong to all these different people that your dad met along the way um it's fascinating. It's a fascinating movie, and I think that difficulty with like intense emotion is like what makes something like First Wave not work. In the mm. sense of mm. like First Wave is is supposed to emotionally punch you with like two depths immediately, mm-hmm. but when it's you know doctors and nurses who grapple with death all the time, kind of like coolly, kind of like saying like, okay, these people died. Mm-hmm. Like eventually, like it weighs on them. Like when the numbers come into play, sure, but. The coolness of life just draining out of somebody doesn't have the emotional resonance it's supposed to have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it sounds like, because obviously I haven't seen this yet, um, it sounds like maybe that has more consideration of like the emotional toll an average viewer would yeah, have yeah. seeing it. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's right. All right. Uh, my number nine is the only 2020-ish film that now show up on my list. Um I don't know. Rewatching Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari—they're all good movies, but they didn't have the emotional connection to me that they did. Daniel Kaluuya is obviously up there. He's, He's like my powerhouse, number. yeah. But I also had a problem with him of where I put him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my problem with—I just—I I, I was going to put him an actor. I, he's like he's the lead, lead actor. He's—he's um, he's in my top yeah, ten for yeah, sure. Yeah. But uh, no, so the only one that shows up on my list is the father. Mm. 
Um, I think from a, a control, this is Florian Zeller's directorial debut based off his own play. Um, for, from a control standpoint, I think this movie works in so many ways. Um, in when you have every act, every performer in this movie is, is is operating on the same level and doing the same work, from Hopkins to Coleman to Williams to Sewell and and Poots. Um, it, it it is a horror movie, in, in, in distilled. You know the 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 choice to tell this from the perspective of somebody suffering from dementia instead of outside, like away from her, uh-huh. or those movies typically would do, or. Um, I'm forgetting the other movies right now. Still Alice? Not Still Alice. Um, <laughs> I'm forgetting the director right now. Uh, Michael Haneke's movie. Oh. Um, but from the, from the point of view of the character. I know what you mean. From, from an outside. I don't know why I can't think of it either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, um, with that interview of, of the person suffering through it. And I think it's it's a remarkable, remarkable film in the sense of, of that choice being made. Mm-hmm. Of putting you there in a position you don't ever want to be in. In a position where I don't think people ever feel comfortable being in. It's a really uncomfortable film. I only watched it the one time. So, uh-huh. um, I don't want to come back to it. But I, I think it's a marvel of, of yeah. filmmaking. And of, of transitioning from the stage to the screen. More mm-hmm. than you know the humans was able to do. Hello? In a similar level of intense emotion in film, uh, my number eight is Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> what do you mean more intense? <laughs> the father of Spider-Man No Way Home. Just, it's, they're so similar. Um, no, this was so much fun to see in a theater. And um, this is probably some of the most fun I've had in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh-huh. I think this movie is an event movie. It's that ten-pole thing. It's that... Avengers Endgame and maybe the past two years of COVID has made me re- appreciate that more. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had this much fun being in a theater as I had with Spider-Man Away. Oh, and yes, it's, it's same. not doing. It's not trying anything. It's not trying anything new. It's not trying to be anything more. But it just nails what it's trying to be in every way. Its set pieces work. Its emotional manipulation, as I mentioned before works um it's it's the most fun i had in the theater in the past year yeah i and i agree with you it's it's the same um and I, we can link our 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 eights yes eights up um I, the green knight is not the most fun i've had in the theater but because i also went to see spider-man no way home but the green knight which is my number eight is was like a um, a tremendous theatrical experience for one, but I also think it's just it's like um, David Lowry makes fun movies, and they're not fun in the same way that Spider-Man No Way Home is fun, but they are like a super good time. And mm-hmm. I, you can, I mean, we have talked a little bit about novelists, like right here in in this, like you know, the last hour of the um, the podcast. Um, he's like a novelist. Who writes a thrilling, like a Jonathan Franzen type guy, who writes a thrilling sentence but writes a very complicated book, and maybe not Franzen because he's a little bit weird. Um, but I, I mean, I don't even really know what the equivalent would be, like the literary equivalent would be. But like David Lowry makes complicated movies, but they don't feel complicated when you're watching them. 
they feel like you can understand, like Old Man of the Gun, Ghost Story, like we've talked about Pete's Dragon on this thing. They seem like when you're watching them, you're like, I know what this is. But then like the more you think about it, you're like, you know what? I'm not sure I know what that is. Um, And the Green Knight, I think, is kind of, if it's not, I mean, Ghost Story might be his masterpiece, but the Green Knight feels like it, like, probably becomes that, like, eventually. Um, It's like a popcorn movie that's, like, not a popcorn movie. It's it's timeline is weird. It's so it's like pushing you away from like really kind of like getting into it because a character dies in the middle of it, but doesn't really die. You just kind of think he died. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's, he makes fascinatingly entertaining movies. Um, which is, I think something you can't say about like a lot of filmmakers working today. Um, my number six, seven, seven. is the Beatles get back. Um, it's. I think it's attached to my number five a little bit, in the sense that um, it requires you to sit with it and just it's let it do what it's gonna do. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And this fucking worked like hardcore on me. I actually think the my least favorite part is like the last hour and a half when they go up onto the roof, um, because you know we've all seen some of that footage before. Um, I liked this movie came alive for me when it wasn't about like um, it wasn't about the myth at all. It was just four dudes hanging out playing tunes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's and that like was like the thing that spoke most to me about the Beatles get back was it was just eight and a half hours of or seven and a half hours of guys playing tunes and one hour of them trying to be the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and how that even in at their most beatily they couldn't like like they couldn't stay couldn't hang like forever and they made another record after that you know i would love to see that documentary as well but it is what it is so the beatles get back is my number seven uh as i mentioned with my best director my number seven is a movie i have a lot of respect for but doesn't connect emotionally to me but if i'm talking about best films of the year this is where it has to land um it's Power of the Dog by Jane Campion. Um, the entire time I watched this film, I didn't feel close to it at all. Mm-hmm. I felt it's a real intellectual kind of experience. Mm. Um, not intellectual in the sense of like, oh, I'm really thinking about it. No, but no, more just like it's it's in the head. And right. it's, it's something you appreciate as a uh, piece of art and less has a um, less for me as something you kind of sit with and rectify your emotions with it is something that is very forward and very controlled with what it's saying but it does so with such masterful control Mm -hmm. and does so with such power and such strength and such um knowledge of the medium and watching it like the thing i most connected with was the fact that like i'm watching going jane campion knows what the fuck she's doing Mm -hmm. and she's doing it in every way i know i don't feel close to it because it has that control um, Mm. in some ways yeah no i know because everyone's on the same kind of wavelength um and it doesn't feel personal like it feels like jane campion's just making something she wants to make to do it or to have the control and to have it's a narrative she wants to tell but it's not something that feels like a passion project so that's why it's here yeah yeah, yeah. i think um, that's right but it's so fucking well done 
Here's my zag. <clears throat> at number six. Uh-huh. Can you take it just take a guess what my zag is? <laughs> take a, I'm just wondering. Um, it's not a movie we talked about. It's not podcast, a movie we talked about? Ever on this podcast. It's a movie I just watched in the past two weeks. At all. You didn't mention it at all. We've re- we've mentioned it today. It's not on your it's on other parts of your list? It's been on our parts of the list, um, but we never reviewed it or anything. I'm assuming it's The Harder They Fall. My number six is The Harder They Fall. Yeah. Um, this is the 2010s, 2020 Tarantino film that Tarantino wanted to make. But Taran- like, like in the sense of like having this exaggerated kind of bombastic funness mm-hmm. to it. But like he's always so, to me, at least with Inglorious Bastards. And um, Django Unchained, and eh, Django Unchained's fine, but Evil Eight still like stuck up his own ass. Oh yeah, this is so much fun. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's having fun with this. It's bloody and gruesome. It's a really fun western movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's not like much going on here in the sense of like actual demanding anything of the audience, uh-huh. but it's. A blast to sure. watch. I, I just watched it on the off. I got high as fuck. And <laughs> not just high, but as fuck. So I watched so I watched Ascension. And I got really high watching Ascension. And like the edible then because I was smoking and then the edible hit and I was like, okay, what am I gonna watch? And I was like, uh this I have to watch this for song. Mm-hmm. And so I just decided to start it for like looking at the song yeah. nominees. And then like I just like this is fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days afterwards, I was like, okay, I'll watch this sober. And I watched it, I was like, this is still a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Everyone's having fun here. But, like, when you have to hit, you have to hit. Like, Keith Stanfield fucking knocks it out of the park. as like, one of the better villain performances mm-hmm. of the year. I think Idris Elba ended up getting nominated, which for best villain out of, like, the Seattle film critics or some Some film critic circle does best villains. Mm-hmm. And it works too cuz like Jonathan Majors is doing like everyone here is doing the work that needs to be done mm-hmm. and like the entire time I watch this it's a 2 hour and 10 minute long movie but mm-hmm. it's so much fun. Mm-hmm. And it's so but it's so light and popcorny mm-hmm. and it's it's so just entertaining. I thought it was going to try to be like a little it was good. I thought it was going to try like I don't know do a little more work kind of like um Riley his last name right now did with um thank you oh my god sorry for sorry to bother you um oh boots riley boots riley yeah uh did with that Mm -hmm. i I thought that was gonna happen here like there was gonna be some deeper kind of like subtextual work but there's not like this is just a fun dumb bloody (sighs) western with like a pop soundtrack over it and really fucking good actors. The the final sequence between Jonathan Majors and Idris Elba kind of like nails, like knocks it out of the park. I just had a lot of fun with this. Yeah, movie. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I think you would enjoy it. Yeah, I never got it. around to it because I just kind of didn't. Um, it would. I don't think it would show up anywhere on your list. But no, 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 no. But it would have been at a, some point. Been a kick. Yeah. yeah. Um, my number six is. But also, don't forget after you, you do your six, we gotta. Right. My number six is Mike Mills' Come On, Come On. Um, It's just kind of like an emotional ball punch. Um, I think it's really, I think it's, I think uh, time will um, remember Come On, Come On as a very significant 
film. I um, actually really agree with that. I think it's it's something I have to revisit. I don't even really mean the podcast. I mean like society's. No, I, I agree. Right. I think society will will. Um, I think it's doing something with empathy and with uh, human like not just conversation but human and human interaction that I think is really um, both positive and original to this film so like he is Jesse played by Walking Phoenix is having a conversation with his sister Liv all the time and she is basically without saying it which I think is fascinating is um, he's trying Jesse is trying to understand or Johnny is trying to understand Jesse not Jesse, it's Johnny. Walking Phoenix was Johnny. And he's trying to, like, kind of... At every kind of turn, he tries to assume who Jesse is. And Gabby Hoffman playing Liv is basically trying to say, like... Or Viv. Vivian? Liv? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's basically trying to say, like, you can't... You can't understand him on your terms. You have to understand him on his terms. And she understands him on his terms, but she also has this other thing that she has to deal with, so she can't be there. So he has to get there. And um, that is really powerful. And I think it's something that, like, Coda tried to do a little bit. I think it's something that Drive My Car tried to do a lot. Like, you know, what is our what is our nature? Um what do we derive pleasure from? And this movie is not about pleasure, um, but I think it's a really complex depiction of what it means to be a person, like just like coming, like growing up in this world. And I think that's where the podcasting comes in, is that like everything's a, everything's getting documented, so we can track how we are here versus how we are. One moment versus how we are like in the next moment. Jesse or Johnny, played by uh, the Walking Phoenix character Johnny, uh, it's, it angers me that the same name. Can't keep him straight in my head. Um, that's like literally his point is that he's getting from point A to where he assumes that he knows who Jesse is to point B where he like actually knows how Jesse is, or where he's more open to the fact that he doesn't know who Jesse is at all and needs to spend more time with him and do more work. And that I think is where like the culture needs to go with dealing with um, the other, and I'm putting air quotes here, people with autism, minorities, immigrants. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like don't worry about who you are and what your expectations are. Worry about what, who they are and what they need to fit into your your world. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie that definitely about meeting people where they are. Yes. Um, but I... I yeah, I think for me it's something that like I need revisiting just because I didn't have that initial kind of like fire with it that mm. I kind of yeah felt separated from it. But I can definitely see where you're coming from. Let's just <laughs> we're just staring at each other intensely. Because I'm excited. Are we passing. stopping? Or are we just like no? We're just, we just pass that. We gotta pass out. So for the first time ever, we have done a predictions of where Tom and I's top five would be. I think we're both very, mostly wrong. You're not super wrong. Yeah. I mean, you got three, you, you got, you got three out of five. 
got one out of five. <laughs> Again, I, I overzagged. <laughs> I overzagged. Um, my number. Oh, you want me to do my number five? Uh, sure. My number five. And I put on on there your number five being licorice pizza, I believe. Or Halloween Kills. Do you like way to cover your bases? But do you like how like look at five through two? Yeah, it's our Halloween Kills. But number one, I zagged and said our crying. You know what? I've been working a lot. I do feel a lot like a ninety-two-year-old Clint Eastwood trying to not have (laughs) sex with a woman. Um, You have my number five is Licorice Pizza. My number five is actually Memoria. Five Um, is your number four. Number four. So you're close. And licorice pizza is on my list. Later, um, Memoria is. It was an ex- it was an experience, and I maybe I'm I actually think I'm not voting for the experience anymore. Um, although that's got to be part of like uh, appreciating it. It is a singular work. Um, if it if one part is wrong it's all bad you know what i mean um but it never it never missteps in its humor in its moments of pathos regardless of what they are even in its spaceships um it is a big open movie i still to this day have no idea how long it is and like i can look it's online like two hours and one minute no, but like it it's, feels like it's 100 is not 10 hours we were in that one movie, hour mario we were in that movie theater forever but it wasn't one of those things. We I, might still be in the movie theater, right? And it, but it wasn't one of those things where I was kind of like, "Oh, get me out of here." I was just gonna, versus me who just no. But it, it wasn't because it was bad. It was no, because, because it was like, like overwhelming, overwhelming physical yeah. experience, and it was. Um, I was glad we did it. It was a singular experience, um, and I, I guess that's that's interesting because like it is my 11, 12. It's mm-hmm. my twelve. Okay. Um, because of the fact that like. It's an experience. So I'm going to be honest with you. It seems like the harder they fall in Spider-Man No Way Home are reactions against Memoria. Not no. like consciously, but like, or maybe consciously, but the idea that like, you know what? That shit fucking like was, that hurt. Uncomfortable. It yeah. was uncomfortable. That shit was not just like a fun experience at the movies. It was like a beating. Yeah, and think- these movies are like good times. Yeah, I think... And I think good movies. Given, given the year, because originally uh, the, a beer I was going to present was fuck 2021 as well. Given the year I had, I think I gave more credit to just like fun, right. relaxing, joyful experiences. Mm-hmm. I don't see Memoria hitting me as hard a second time through. Oh, I mean, me neither. I don't I'm think never I'm seeing gonna, it again. I'm never going to see it again. But I, it's like stuck in my guts. But I just, I just forever. don't. For me, when I sat with it, I was like, "Is that its moviness? Like, is it that, or like, is it so many other factors of the overall kind of existential, not existential, but the overall kind of weird experience with it? Of yeah, yeah. Its release schedule of the demand by which we had to go see it. Sure. And so uh, it, it, I kind of removed it totally mm. from this year except for sound where i was like no i can quintessentially define that sound here but like it was a weird kind of like experimental thing that felt separated from every other movie mm-hmm. so that's kind of like 
right quarantined it. Yeah, it might be one of those things that I don't touch until, like, it somehow, like, miraculously ends up as, like, a Criterion film. Like, it's, so it comes out, like, August of this year. It just comes in a film reel. Yeah, that, that would be amazing. <laughs> Criterion should totally do that. You're not allowed to have this, um, except like Unless this. you have a projector. Yeah. And I, um, could, I could fucking get one. I guess I could do my number, yeah, my number five, and I guess we get to Spider. From what here. do I have? What do I have as a number so five? So you put my number five as Nightmare Alley, which was which is my number 11. <sighs> uh, but my actual number five is a movie that it does not show up anywhere on the top five, and I'm surprised by that. The Green Knight is well, my number five. Um, again, I overzagged. Yeah. You should have very unzagged with my list this year. I'm curious to see where you would have unzagged, if you could call it. Um, but, yeah, no, it was, it's, it's, it's the first film I saw in theaters that had a real grandiose theatrical experience. Um, it hits all the emotional resonance I wanted to hit. It hits, it just, every moment in it is kind of just a simple cinematic pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, this and my number four are kind of like combined with Spider-Man No Way Home and The Heart of They Fall are these like four movies where I just had so much fun with. Mm-hmm. But Green Knight's the one that has like, Green Knight's obviously the one that has the most to say because David Lowry just always has something to say. But ultimately it is still at its core, this real popcorn movie that is like an experience and I just had just this tremendous amount of fun with it. Oh yeah, to it was sit great. there with it and have, but but also to appreciate the fact of pure control. Like it is at its essence this kind of road adventurish movie. Sure, but everything you're seeing is done through the tight lens of an auteur mm-hmm. who knows what the fuck he wants you to see. It's not kind of just a journeyman pay by numbers sort of movie it's no. it's a it's it, there's there's real deep passion and intent behind it and it's complicated it still, and weird yeah it is complicated and weird but it's still at its core fun it's a good time yeah. oh i, I mean I, that's the uh, green knight like is like a singular movie experience and i think i love the, the poster i think is like a classic all-time movie poster where it's like presented like an action movie with this Dev Patel, like, with an axe. Dev Patel, who has avoided both of our... He did not get on either of our best actor lists. Yeah, I, just, I think... I felt a little think, bad about it. I think, in terms of the performances of that movie, like, everything's just working for Lowry. It seems so easy. I think that's yeah. my I think that's my problem with, the, like, the Dev Patel and the Alicia Vikander, is that, like, it just seems easy. Even, even Edward Ben. No. <laughs> never again. <laughs> he will um, never make my one of my And so, my number four... Yep. Uh, you had this down as Memoria, which, like I said, is my number twelve. Yep. Um, is is the final of the big, th- like before the three, um, that I consider just more of a fun in the cinema. But I'm surprised. This, actually, thought for sure you would have this like in my number your five for me. Um, is last night in Soho? Oh yeah. Well, it's, it was hard. So this is the thing. Um, I'm just writing it down. This is the thing that. Um, I think it was a problem with how I'm not going to see this Edgar Wright movie. I'm just not going to no, do it. Yeah. So I think part of the problem with me in relation to that movie is that when you were talking about it, you weren't like super effusive about it. 
you are very technical and like I kind of like this and like it's fine and whatever because I didn't see it. So you weren't like we couldn't like throw it back and forth at each other. You were just like, here is what I think about this. Movie. Yeah, I was trying to. It be- was very matter of fact, and so it didn't come off like. I mean, maybe is that one of the one that your trivia people were just like, oh, you must have. No, it's it's uh, my top three. Okay, I got two of them. Um, right. I um, would never have guessed last night in Soho. Uh, yeah, no. So I, I'm not like crazy effusive about this movie, but I just think it is meant to be like a lighter uh, it, it rests in the same weird world that Robert Zemeckis is what lies beneath rest in that is a fucking weird comparison no in the sense of like I love like if we're talking about like 19 what uh, no it's 2000 I think is what lies beneath 2000 movies like what lies beneath is really yeah we've is, talked about is, it a bunch is, between yeah, us yeah, yeah. um is my top 150 pivotal films because there's like this weird stuff going on, but ultimately it's in service of just like entertainment and being fun. And last night in Soho does that, but like uh-huh. last night in Soho, it's it's nice. And I, I mentioned this in the review is the fact that like Edgar Wright kind of like pulls back a bit and doesn't like have to throw all this shit at the wall, mm-hmm. but he's just letting things go. He's letting like people, he's letting his performers go. Like Terrence Stamp is going crazy. Diana Rigg is going crazy. Anna Taylor Joy, you know, is doing her thing. I loved her in this. Um, you know, there's Thomas McKenzie going like, I have to like be the fucking core of this movie. But it's it's this like wild, weird time that's like imperfect, but like the things that hit and the things that work mm-hmm. really work. Mm-hmm. The things that don't work really don't work. But and, and uh, it makes me and that actually kind of makes me appreciate the things that do work. So like Matt. Um, Smith. Matt Smith. Yeah, I, I knew the name. I just got like phlegm. Yeah. <laughs> um, like he doesn't work and it sticks out. But like the things that do work just make me like it more. Mm. It makes it makes me appreciate it more because there's like... There's this thing with like some directors of the age group that Edgar Wright's in um, who have gotten a lot of focus and got a lot of attention. And I, I would include Edgar Wright kind of in that like Nolan circle of like mid to late 40s and 50s Mm -hmm. who just like they kind of can do what they want to do and like the Reddit world will kind of be like that's cool Mm -hmm. or the world and stuff but like I feel as though Edgar Wright was like okay I'm not going to just do my shit here I'm going to do a movie that I kind of like actually am interested in and kind of like care about showing Mm -hmm. and uh, in doing so like I'm not going to have my hallmarks or my kind of like token things and I don't know. It's kind of like a meta thing almost, and the fact that I appreciated that, and the fact that like it felt like he pulled back to do this movie. Mm-hmm. And in doing, I, I went into this movie with those expectations of these kind of like bombastic Edgar Wright things, and when they didn't come, and instead you got these other kind of bombastic moments that he's not really known for. I was like, it drew my attention more, mm. and I kind of like. It is definitely a movie that is more imperfect than it is on my list like Mm. it deserves to be further down Mm -hmm. but my experience with it and my expectations for it going in um were so mismatched and so the movie i ended up experiencing i felt closer to because it defied those expectations interesting and because of that because of that it 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 ended up being a like my best films of the year list is ultimately like for this year is like 
what I felt closest to sort of list. Sure. Um, I felt closer to that movie because of that. Because, like, after so many movies of Edgar Wright doing Edgar Wright stuff, he's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to pull back. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. And it made it just a, a, what is a typical kind of, like, psychological, supernatural thriller more entertaining. And mm. that's what, like, happened with What Lies Beneath. So it was like, I expected something, and I got this weird Robert Zemeckis, Alfred Hitchcock thing, and I was like, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it made me feel closer to it. Even mm. though it's, they're both, both of those movies are very imperfect and not nearly the top of the class for the year. But sure. But they are well, they don't, eminently and entertaining. And I, I think the difference, and again, I didn't see Last Night in Soho, so I think the difference between those two things might be that What Lies Beneath knew it didn't aspire, What Lies Beneath didn't aspire to anything other than like what it was. But we talked about this. And we talked Last Night in Soho, I think maybe he thought it might. No, but we talked about this, because I think we talked about in the review, we talked about, like, Edgar Wright made a movie, but the culture around him expected it. Right, that's right. And I think Edgar Wright was just trying to, and I talked about this in the review, I think Edgar Wright was trying to make a fun, camp, not campy, but fun kind of, like, yeah. psychological horror. I think he fucking, like, nailed that. And the culture but the culture was, was like, making a no, you're trying to make, statement. like, yeah. Yeah. He wasn't. Right. No, that's right. Yeah. And at the time, Robert Zemeckis... There, he was not making a statement. The culture was like, "You're not making a statement." Rosemary is like, "I did uh, like a 500 episodes of Tales from the Crypt." Of course, I'm not. Getting <laughs> this out of the park, by the way. All right, so you have my number four as Memoria, which we just talked about. Was number five. My number four is um, Lauren Hathaway's *A Novice*. Um, movie I completely forgot about. It is mentioning a movie about rowing. In college, so competitive rowing. It's also a movie about depression and a movie about anxiety. Is this available on the stream? Yeah, it's been available on the stream for a long time. Um, uh, Isabel Furman uh, plays the main character in it. I think this movie's one flaw is that I don't think its script is as tight as it should be. There's literally no reason given specifically for why the main character is doing any of the things that she's doing. Um, and in some cases I think that's okay. Um, in this case, I wish they had clarified it a little bit more because I think the performance gets a little, um, it's a little unfocused because I'm not sure why she's doing any of the things that she's doing, except the fact that she's doing the things that she's doing are intense and, um, cinematically pleasurable. They're just, they're just narratively kind of incoherent. Um, but as a technical piece of filmmaking, it is fucking outs- like outstanding. Um, it is, it takes, it, it throws in the face of, I think, um, current cinema, some of its, uh, more pretentious, like, notions about itself. So it does this awesome thing where... It focuses on the main character in this kind of like spotlight setting where like everything goes dark. So she's like sitting on this rowing machine. She's about to practice. She just wants to break this record and everything goes dark except for like her. And then like a 1950s song, like a needle drop comes in. And I think the intention is in another movie, they would think that that's cool. Fast of space. But in this movie, it's all perception based. So what you find out, yeah. No, it's not Vast. I mean, Vast of Night was working with what it could. Um, this movie is so based in perception that, like, some of the things that 
you think it's doing because the filmmaker's trying to say something about this character in reality is the character saying something about herself. It's like a kind of like wish fulfillment, but like the opposite because terrible things happen to this woman and she does terrible things to herself. Um, but like there's a, there's uh she's a, she's a rower. So she gets these kind of like horrible, like blisters on her hands, but they look like stigmata. Okay. There's like a movie where, or there's a movie. There's a uh, a phrase in this movie where like they say like you caught a crab and that means that like your rowing got off and like you hit yourself in the face and so like you see from that moment on um, you see crabs all over like boiling crabs and like crabs kind of like walking over this person it's like this kind of montage editing and you think that even my wife said that like oh they're really going heavy with this crab thing and I was like yes of course they are because it's not like the filmmaker showing us crabs. It's the filmmaker showing us the character perceiving crabs. You are so into this character, like the interiority of this character, the irrationality of this character through the sound, through the filmmaking, through everything. It's incredible. If the, if the outside of this character, like the non-interiorness of this character was expressed like a little bit better, this might've been like my number two movie. Um, but it is a it is a visceral, physical, um, film going experience. It's, it's incredible. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely check it out. Um, the novice. You have my number three is passing. We talked about it a little bit with passing. I don't think passing held up. Again, this is one of my wife ruined a movie for me where she was like, "Why is this happening?" And I was like, "Yeah, why is that happening?" And my wife is just like, she's black. And I was like, she is black. Like, I'm not sure why Alexander Skarsgård is just, like, pretending like she's not black. Like, that becomes, like, a big deal. But to be fair, on your first review of this, I was like, oh, this has to be a stuff. <laughs> well, but that's, a, but, like... But, it's most, like, censor and boiling. The more I think about, the like, my first review of this movie, the more I see the cracks showing. Because one of the things that I said in the first review of this was that, like, I really like the score. But they do it a lot. Yeah. Like, this, this movie has a... The score has a theme, and they do it after, like, they kind of introduce it. There's a point in, like, two-thirds of the way through the movie where they're just, like, every five minutes they're playing the theme to the fucking score. And it's just, like, over and over and over and over like and over again. It's like, this, yeah. we get it. Yeah. We, it's, it's enough. Um, my number three is Licorice Pizza. Kind of like I, a, I added number five, so not bad. No, no, you did good. The fact that it's on the list, the fact that we, like, got each other, you know, I did a bad job, you did a good job. Um... For me, everything that you said about Last Night in Soho and Spider-Man and, um, you know, The Father, I think they're all the same for you. Um, just, like, fun times. <laughs> the harder they fall. Um, the, fa- the Father fun times? Licorice Pizza was... Yeah, you had a good time. <laughs> Licorice Pizza was for me. Licorice Pizza was a great fucking time. And I loved listening to the... Like, I listened to a podcast not about Licorice Pizza, but about, like, some of the backlash that's happening with Licorice Pizza. About, like, the John Michael Higgins... Like pretending oh, to be Japanese, man. and I was like, if you don't understand like what's happening there, then like that's on you, buddy. Yeah, that's a, that's like that's a that's a you thing. I mean, it's making fun of him. Time. He's making fun of He's him. Making fun of the time of the For people sure. of the time. Yeah. He's a fucking moron. Um, and the fact that it's John Michael Higgins, like I I don't love the Grish Pizza at all, but like that actor portraying that, who's always been portrayed as a fucking idiot, like right. John Michael Higgins. 
By the way, great amazing. Actor. Right. Like, great. But he's always portrayed as a fucking moron. Sure. There are so many lines of this movie and so many parts of this movie that I think about and I either get happy or I laugh out loud or I like want to think about them more. Um, it's an For me, it's an easy movie. I've been working on like a little bit of an essay about it, so I won't go into it here just because I could talk about it forever. Um, so when we do another... Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's. I mean, Licorice Pizza is not going to end up on my pivotal film. It's not replacing anything. Um, it's not nine. It's not nine days. It's not High Life. It's not At Eternity's Gate. Um, but it's a good fucking time, man. It's just it's just a fun time. Soundtrack kicks fucking ass. It's got all these great Paul Thomas Anderson sequences in it. Um, he's holding like all these different people accountable for stuff. Even though it seems like he's glorifying them, he's very yeah. obviously not glorifying them. Um, I got, it's I don't really even know what to say about it. It's one of those movies that like I kind of want to recommend to my dad um, when it but comes out, just I think, because I think of your dad would love that movie. Sound, but like, it's just because it's it, it's of the era, it's of the times, and it's like not trying to be anything other than I think what it is. And I love how homegrown it feels, like the fact that the Himes. Like the whole family's in this there, movie, yeah. um, all these people that he knows are in this movie. Um, Cooper Hoffman's a star of this movie. Um, it's just it feels very organic and I don't know, like no, and innocent. And that's my issue with it. I think I, I still haven't seen it since the one time I saw it in theaters. Either I right. think I like it. My problem with it is he feels so close to it that he. Cannot create an overarching narrative that connects fully, mm-hmm. and that's my problem with it. It's like, like, like you know something yeah. like um, Magnolia has like a lot of divergent, different things going on. Sure, but there is a thing to bring it to a nexus point. Whereas like this, there's moments in here where I'm like, nah, this kind of feels like a fun scene. Like it feels kind of like Kentucky Fried Movie, mm. Paul Thomas Anderson style, which I think is solid like an incredibly right. well done film but you end up going there like all these moments really hit me uh one of the pivotal moments i almost put in was the um benny safty um alana hay moment where they're in the restaurant and mm. benny safty's like trying to have him escort the boyfriend out yeah, yeah, yeah um but that feels somewhat disjointed from like the emotional affect of what's going on else on in the movie right that's, that's kind of like my my issue with it. and we can go back and forth in this like and i have i have thoughts about that as well um like kind of justifying it i guess um but like it's not necessary here i don't think it needs justification i just think it's just as like what do you want from the movie no no i just think i think it comes those... to a point in pivotal film where we realize like oh movies by themselves are kind of objectively good it's the viewer coming into it sure, like, sure, sure. i'm just saying like from i would a... not say licorice pizza bad is a bad movie we both agree being the Ricardos is a bad movie. It's terrible. Because objectively, it's a bad movie. It's an awful movie. But Licorice Pizza, we disagree. I don't like it. But I think objectively, it's a well-made movie. <laughs> this is the best analogy ever in the history you know, of the and, Yeah, yeah, And that, that's, what, that's what's fun about film. is like some movies get critically hailed and are fucking garbage. Being the Ricardos. <laughs> don't look up. Um, don't look up. Uh, what else is... Going to get nominated for Best Picture? I don't know. Well, then you've heard that they everyone thinks that Don't Look Up is going to win Best Picture, right? It's not going to. There's no way. It, I think it wins Best Song. Um, for sure. I do think it, it beats Billy Eilish's No Time to Die, which is fine. It was a fine song. 
That's my that's my hard take for this year. No Time to Die is a fine song. We have to talk about that. The fact that you watched that documentary. Off air. Um, so my number three you have nine days as my number three Uh and you would be wrong because nine days is my number two and I will mention that because I'm just going to say nine days is my number two we'll talk about that when you get to your number one my number three what would you guess right now having heard that I'm not zagging too much um you know it's between two movies yeah Probably not Macbeth. It's Macbeth, I'm assuming, is your number one. My number three is Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, okay. Do you know what number one is now? <laughs> um, yeah, no. Uh, Macbeth is my second favorite. Dune? <laughs> Sorry, no, it's, it's Barb and Star going to Vista Del Mar. Um, no, so Macbeth is my second favorite Shakespeare play. Um, but it has like the, the closest personal thing with me where mm-hmm. in high school, one of my favorites being Titus Adronicus. Um, so Macbeth has like a real personal connection to me. We did, it's, it's the play I'm the, clo- I'm honestly the closest with from Shakespeare, mm-hmm. like Shakespeare fucking nerd for his histories and for his tragedies and these comedies fucking suck ass um because they're like for their they're for their time it doesn't work now for me um and his histories are good too um but the thing about this is is it replaces Rowan Plancy's Macbeth for me because I always looked Hmm. at um this play and was like, oh, like I was always intrigued by the Ross as the third killer aspect of it. And uh, like this is that's on full display about Ross being a more prominent character. But what really works is just like when I read this play in high school, like the scenes that popped out to me as like a person who loved film in high school. Mm-hmm. But the scenes where I'm like, this is so fucking cinematic. Like, this needs to pop, like never did pop. The young Seward scene mm. never popped ever in a theatrical version, in a cinematic version of it. But the young, like this is what made me love this movie is the young Seward scene. Because that is the most cinematic presentation of anything ever. Mm-hmm. The fight between Denzel Washington's Macbeth and young Seward, you know, where he throws fucking the blood that he gets from the cut on his face in his head and yeah, he yeah. Just, like, stabs him in the neck. You have the leaves blowing in you get the first image that the crown room is like outside like joe cohen is smarter to be like this is a a moment in this movie that is like bombastic bombastic is the word of this episode i guess but huge and important and he exemplifies that to the, the nth degree and everything here is cinematic there mm-hmm. is no this is my like favorite Shakespeare adaptation I've seen because it is first and foremost a movie and secondly an adaptation of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. There is no everything that is being done is in service of the play. Mm-hmm. Is being done in service of the play as a movie. Not being done in service of the play has a stage performance. Mm-hmm. Nothing it's a about film this. version of a stage performance. Of exactly. Movie. Yeah. Like nothing about this feels as though you know we have those three walls. It always feels fluid. Yeah. It always feels cinematic. Mm-hmm. It is the first time 
you know, like people look at Boz Yerman, Romeo and Juliet, but they'd be wrong because that movie stinks. But like this is film. This is cinema. This is taking Shakespeare and bringing it to celluloid. Like this is, this works in so many levels. Um, it is masterful. It is intense. It is intriguing. It is so well done. And it is bringing forward a classic story to a modern audience and shaping intrigue and interest in that way. You know, basically, Ross is presented as like, um, as a little finger or whatever. The, the, the character, Adrian Gillian's character from Game of Thrones, I mm-hmm. think, Littlefinger or whatever. He basically, for people that like Game of Thrones, whatever. Got to see Amelia Clark's boobs. That's good. Um, Except for the fact that she's clearly been traumatized by the fact that they're just like, no, you're obligated to show your boobs. Well, then fine. Whatever actress enjoyed showing her boobs on. I don't think any of them. I think it was a, t- I think it was a tough experience for lots of people. My joke has been. <laughs> Anyways, um, he's clearly meant to be that kind of like character kind of wringing his hands in the background-esque. Or he's presented that way. Because it's it's something that is... Ross? Yeah. yeah. It's broachable by modern audiences. We mm-hmm. expect that. We expect that schemer. We expect an Iago-ish kind of character. And maybe he is that, or maybe he isn't that. But he's at least presented in a way that's interesting in it. This is a real modernization of a classical text in both um, the changing of, of its story, in the pre- presentation of its performances, in its... Um, Staging, mm-hmm. you know, like it is bringing so many factors in that mm-hmm. makes it so that makes something that is already timeless much more timeless. Well, you could argue that he's like the one true Coen Brothers character in this whole thing, whereas he's like neurotic. One of the two. He's. I mean, I would I would one hundred percent put. Um, I forgot the character's name, but. Uh, Stephen Root's Porter. Oh well, yeah, but he doesn't count. I mean, it's whatever. Um, <laughs> I mean, but that is a real co- but, like, sure. But he's also just, like an idiot. Yeah, but, like but I'm saying, like a Ross William thing, yeah. H Macy and Fargo type thing. Ross is he's the opposite, in the sense that he's winning. Yeah, but he's also complicated beyond like whatever they can show you on the screen, which is why those two moments of, or not two moments, like when he's talking to um, Macduff's wife. And he's like looking out the window and stuff. And then when he's talking Sweet. to McDuff later and kind of like, you know, says like his wife is fine. And then he says his wife is dead. Like that's all. That's the stuff that the Coen brothers are like the masters of. Is And he captures that better than everybody. And then everyone else is kind of doing their well, own thing. What I think is interesting about like tragedy and Macbeth is it reminds me like the most of like something like Blood Simple. Mm. Um, in the sense of like Ross's characters, similar to like that M- Emmett Walsh, um, Dorian, like he's he's much more of a villain, but like that dichotomy of behavior mm. is there. And yeah, I agree. Like there's just there's a, a film nuance to Tragedy Macbeth that I don't think is typically that I think like directors are typically afraid of doing. That like Joe Cohen was just like, fuck it, whatever. At worst, it just I fail. Well, I think one of the interesting things about so you know mentioned um, Polanski's Macbeth um, before. 
I think Polanski thought he was going to strip Macbeth down to its base parts, which is just the play. Um, and so and the, that's, viscer- the viscera, right? But that's yeah. where you get the minimalist like sceneries and, and sets and all this other shit. Um, this movie is just kind of like I'm going to strip it down as well with its brutal architecture and its black and white, um, but it's not. In stripping Macbeth down, Polanski muted the emotions of whatever was happening, and they were just performing the play on a very set-like, on a very stage-like set. Yeah. You know what I mean? This, everything has four dimensions. You know what I mean? There's not just three, there's not a back wall and then like a side wall, everything. And I think it's typified in the, um, something we have this big come scenes where like, Macbeth is on one side of the stage and they're on another. You know, Catherine Hunter talking is the witch to- that's talking is on the opposite side. Well, there's real three dimensions. So we can that say scene. that there, there's three dimensions right. that scene. Usually, like in stage plays, where you have two dimensions, like they'll be on one side, but they're above. Right, and what I would say about four dimensions, is that you can see that there's four walls around. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about like the scene, the couple of scenes that take place in that one room, where he's talking to the assassins. Um, and, you know, it's not raining in one scene and then it's raining in another scene. It's a round room. Um, they use, like, the space. You can see the column of rain in the middle of it at that one point. Um, that stuff matters, I think. Um, and I think it, it makes the Polanski Macbeth seem a little bit, I don't know, Passing. like unfocused. You know what I mean? Like, the emotion, the emotions just aren't there. It seems... No, it ends up... To me, the plans game Macbeth ends up seeming focused in one aspect. Whereas this Macbeth seems focused in multiple aspects. Like, so the plans game Macbeth is trying to create this viscera, right? It's trying to create, like, this real sort of connection through its palpable violence, mm-hmm. right? Or sure. it's kind of like um, rawness and... Um, like not brutalism, but kind of like it's um, I don't want to say humanity, but just it's it's supposed to be raw. Yeah, it's supposed to be Titanesque or whatever. Um, whereas this is trying to operate on so many levels, it's it's looking at the it's looking at Macbeth as a more fluid, living object, and and trying to tackle that in twenty twenty one has a has a thing. It's mm. not it's not kind of like coming at it at one point. It's coming at it in multiple different directions going like, okay, if this was this story was created now, how would we tell it? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I don't think many creators of of Shakespeare do that. They kind of just no, they're too differential. They're to too play. focused on yeah. one thing. And they're yeah. and they're exactly. They're too forgiving to everything. And whereas you know, Cohen is just like, yeah, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Yeah. Because I'm going to do it. Well, because he had something else in mind. Um, your number two was nine days. We'll talk about it, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's, that's um, why I kind of like my. You had my number two as the Green Knight. My Green Knight is uh, my number eight. Um, so you were close. Uh, my number two is um, Drive My Car. Um, it is. Yeah, it's, that was... Definitely the one I was like, eh, does he well, have it was, it there? It was hard because neither of us talked about like seeing it. Like we just knew we both saw it, but we didn't talk about like what we yeah. saw, uh, thought about it at all. Um, its length, 
I think works for it in the context that I saw it. Um, I loved sitting with these people. I so love you just to, to yeah. clarify, you got it as a screener yeah. for film independent for the independent spirit Awards. Yeah. I just joined that. So I'll get that for 2022 movies, mm-hmm. but I had to see this in the theaters as a single experience. Yeah. And it's, um, see, I can't, I can only guess what like seeing it as a single experience would be. Um, I'm assuming I would like it, but I can't guarantee you that that's the case um, because I really enjoyed watching it. How I watched it, I like watched it like reading a novel. I watched it for like an hour and then I put it away, you know, till the next day. Then I watched it for another hour. Then I put it away till the next day. Then I watched like the last hour of it. Um, so a lot of the the directorial choices, the staging, the pacing, um, these really long scenes, the way that the sign language kind of hits. Um, it hits so differently. Like the last, like the end of this movie is essentially all in sign, and then um, uh, the driver is in a grocery store, um, like buying groceries, and he, he clearly kind of gave her the car that he was driving. This this sob that he was really attached to, um, but there's no context for like what happened there. Um, so like the real last thing that you see of this movie is like Vanya and his wife. And his wife is played by a deaf woman, and his wife is holding him from behind, and she is signing a very deliberate sign, which is really... I mean, this is like the year of the the deaf character in movie. Um, I think, and again, in a come on, come on type of like conversation, I think we're moving in a direction where like that's more acceptable with Coda, with this, with The Eternals. Um, I feel like there's another movie, too, where this happened. Um and it's very it's very powerful like that the silence of it and the deliberateness of her movements sold like the that emotion um it was a movie to sit with it was a movie to think about it was a very deliberate film um it's funny it's really sad it's really complex um it's campy a little bit where it like wants to be. Um, I, I, we forget that guy's name. We could have looked it up, but we don't care. So the actor that the main character cast to play Vanya was having an affair with his wife. Um, that scene in the car when he kind of like tells him the ending of the story, the way that it's, that shot is lit, what his face looks like. He's got this kind of half smile and his face is kind of lit up and there's like, like a little bit, but there's darkness around him in the car. Um, it's pretty campy. Um, you know, the way that they use sex in this movie, um, is, I don't know, the whole thing's very, the whole thing's super fascinating and it feels so deep and it feels so lived in. So you get these moments and I love that moment when like they decide they're going to, they're going to rehearse outdoors. And so they pick this spot and they're just doing it. And he says, the main character, I don't know his name in front of me. It doesn't really matter. Um, so the two women are so one woman is deaf and the woman is American, um, and so she's doing the whole play in Mandarin Chinese because that's what she knows, and she's playing off of this deaf woman. Deaf woman, so all, everyone has to kind of know the whole play. And there's these great scenes of them rehearsing the play, and there he's like wants them to take all the emotion out of it while they're rehearsing and just remember the play. Um, and he, there's this great conceit of him driving in the car and him listening to the thing, and that's all from the novel, or that's all from the short story. Um, there's this great moment where they they the him the two main character the two main women in the play are are, are having um, this conversation. They're outdoors and they hug each other. And he's like, something happened. 
between you two, but it just happened on stage. You need to make it happen on the audience. And like, um, one of the, the actor that plays Vanya is like, what happened between them? Because he doesn't see it. Yeah. And, um, I think that's kind of the way that the movie functions is that you know as the viewer that stuff is happening and you can feel that something happened but you don't know you don't know the nature of what has happened I think until like the very end of the movie where he goes back on stage to deliver to confront the end of the Vanya stuff so we see him like earlier in the movie playing Vanya and he like can't go on with the thing. He runs off the stage and he doesn't ever go back on the stage. In this one, he runs off the stage. He's like in the same state, but he goes back on the stage. He has a gun this time, so you're just kind of like, oh, what is he going to do with this gun? And we kind of know what he's going to do with the gun because we've seen that rehearsal of the play. Um, it's almost very Birdman in that sense that like we kind of know what this play is supposed to look like, um, and then we kind of get to see a little bit of the play. Um, but he goes back on the stage, and like the end of the play, the thing that devastates him is not necessarily like anything that he has to do. It's what he has to hear, and what he has to confront, and what he's been hearing his wife say for years and years and years on this tape that he that she made that she read the play for him because that's how he learns to play is just like listening to it repetitiously over and over yeah. and over again. Um, but he gets conf- he is just confronted by this. The, the love of this woman, arms around him, delivering these lines without saying the lines, but like, you know, gesturing them. Um, you just have to know. Like, to, to, for it to work on you, you have to know. And I'm not saying that I that know. Like I really have to be yeah. Sorry. So I'm not saying that, like, I know something that other people don't know. Um, I'm more saying, like, in the context of the movie, you have to know that he's he the character knows something, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about this movie is that it like withholds it withholds a lot. It does, yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of I think that's kind of I think it's kind of the point, and I feel like that's a super pretentious thing to say, but I also think it's yeah. I also think it's right, um, where it. And I think that's part of like the nature of like the the wife's divulging of like the story, like so the husband doesn't know the end of the story, but the 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 um, the the guy he's having she's having an affair with does know the end of the story, but even he feels like he doesn't know the end of the story. You know what I mean? Um, so it's what's the end of the story? What's the final emotion? How are we supposed to feel? What is? Um, the main character feel it's all up in the air and i think it's one of the reasons i like love the cinematography and like the direction is that everything's very clean um like super clean it felt yeah it's almost my problem it felt like almost too clean and maybe that's because it just saw it in one sitting but mm-hmm. it felt like too uh, sterile I guess. Yeah, and I but I think the the like some of like the production design with like the the um the couple's apartment like everything's very court like cordoned off. Yeah. Like the nature of the 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 festival seems very like idyllic almost. Um his house is like that she rents him is like out by the ocean. He has a perfect driver. The lines are like too clean. Like everything about it's just like the lines of it. But I wonder if that's part of that is because, and I think this is why it's my number two, is because it makes me think is that like I wonder if part of the reason that like everything's got to be too clean is because like it's not about what's out here, it's about what's like in here, and like so the more you hear the Uncle Vanya, 
the more you hear the script, the longer this goes on, perhaps the closer you get to feeling like closer to the character. Well, that's that's interesting. Interesting thing I can think is like Mirakami himself has a storyteller when he's kind of remembering something he's really clean. Like oh, he's really super distinct. clean. Yeah. It's like is that like well he uses so he's all he all he only he everything's translated so he writes in Japanese so he's not writing in English so it's translated yeah. but he only uses he uses very um I don't want to say American. He uses English words, so the translations of his books always seem very clean. It's not like a translation of a Spanish language novel into English, where like you could, it could be anything, or like a German language novel into English, where like this word could blindness. be fucking anything. Yeah. Um, and so they pick like the most poetic word, or if the translation's good, just kind of like the word that functions best in the na- in the context of this translation, hmm. um, like a Roberto Bolano novel or a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel or something like that, um, or Jose Saramago novel. Portu- Portuguese is maybe different than than um, Spanish, I don't know. Um, I mean, in terms of like how it gets translated. But I think in this, it's it's true to the nature of like what Murakami seems to be after. Because in his novels, all the apartments are apportioned the same way everything's very clean they all eat very clean meals they drink one maybe two beers with their meals of omelets and like toast or like rice and um uh you know steamed fish or something like that everything's always very the lives that these people live are always very clean and then like the the uh, drama comes from like the way that he like it gets blown apart yeah, it's it's everything's carp, like compartmentalized. Yeah, yeah. And then those things get blown apart. And like, yeah, that's what I wonder. Like watching this, like had I had that opportunity, to kind of like come back to it because of how clean it is. It mm-hmm. feels. I don't know. I just felt myself kind of floating away from it. Mm-hmm. Um. You want me to do my number one? Uh no. Let me finish on your number one because okay. it's my number two. Um. So you said my number one is gonna be censor. Yes, my number over zag. I'm assuming it's Tick, Tick, Boom. My number one's Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, yeah, I, I d- didn't expect when I first saw this movie to love it as much as I did, but mm-hmm. I keep coming back to it. Um, the entire is this real life in the why and swimming parts of this and even Sunday, like I just keep coming back to it. It's something, I, a movie I've watched now a half dozen times mm-hmm. in various it, it's not you know Portrait of Lady on Fire I'm watching it in pieces but it feels comfortable mm. um, it is Rent for me was a big part of like my college experience like mm. my college girlfriend loved Rent and so like one of our first big dates was I took her to see Rent like you know, a traveling performance of it mm-hmm. um, like the, from Gypsies yeah no, is that uh, I can't remember what the auditorium was called, but it's you know, it's one of those traveling sort of things that like like a touring before. company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I always kind of enjoyed Rent for that, for the memory of those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came into this kind of expecting absolutely nothing. Uh, through line through this podcast has been I'm not a big. Lin Manuel Miranda guy, but mm-hmm. apparently, 
He did something right. Yeah, he did something. Twice, apparently, because he almost got my best original song, too. That's true. <laughs> we don't talk about Bruno, Mario. Um, but no, every, uh, this, this is just a joy to watch. Um, mm. It is the things I liked about Rent to the nth degree. Mm. Um, it is, it's comfort. It, it feels good. And everyone is is working their ass offs here. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's not the best screenplay, but really, I don't think it's a bad screenplay. It's a fine screenplay, but like it's a screenplay of the musical, so it just is doing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think the choices that Lin Manuel Miranda made as a director here, like I kind of expect them to be more in the face of this. Mm-hmm. Expecting to be more bomb, like more. I expect this to be more of like this is my thing, my interpretation of this. But he kind of just let the Jonathan Larson musical speak for itself, mm-hmm. which is a fine musical. But like we talked about, it is it is a Roller musical is telling the kind of story of Larson's life, no matter how much artifice of 90s musical there may be there. Um, it is doing that in the most authentic way it could be done. There is no sort of capitulation or focus in just doing other stuff. It is letting that kind of voice speak and then casting Andrew Garfield um, as your Jonathan Larson and just being kind of like, like the most raw, authentic sort of letting him linger over his own charisma sort of person yeah. works so well. Mm-hmm. Um, you cast anybody else there and I think it, it falters. It doesn't work. Um, but I think everyone here is working in synergy with mm-hmm. one another, and it is just the most fun I had. Oh, I gave Ron Howard. If, if we're doing a Best Pictures thing, I gave Ron Howard an award. Congratulations. <sighs> and Lin-Manuel Miranda. What's happened to me? What is... Um, but no, I... I I love this movie through mm. and through. I could literally watch the last hour of this movie so many times. I, I I have. I've watched it from swimming. Swimming was so in my best moments of the year, swimming probably is in there, but mm-hmm. I I tried to limit it to like one moment a movie. Mm-hmm. Um but the the second swimming happens where he kind of figures out the um why am I forgetting the song? No, not come as you are. Um The big the big song he has to he has to create mm-hmm. for uh, Superbia. Mm-hmm. Um, like when he touches the, he's like, oh, I can think of was swimming. And when he touches the bottom of the pool and like the musical notes all pop up. I'm like, I watched this movie the first time also pretty high. So maybe there's a through line with that. Um, but just like when that happened, I was like, I'm kind of like, th- that's a weird thing to do, but it's kind of like a, fun thing to do i don't think you oversold like, it we talked about that at the time yeah but like i think lin Man miranda and everyone here had fun with this they, yeah they let it be fun but they also it, knew it meant something yeah it didn't it mean meant, nothing it meant something but like they ultimately focused on it being fun yeah and being entertaining and and allowing the emotion to carry through with that yeah and, and that's what worked for me that's what continues to work for me. That's why I continue to like listen to the soundtrack. That's why I continue to watch the scenes, is because everyone's kind of 
vibrantly working on the same. You know what's page. weird, Mario, is that like one of the criticisms I've heard about this is that like the superbia um, music isn't very good, and so they're just kind of like, well, why would I want to watch a movie where like this um, the musical that he's working on isn't very good and have to listen to the songs? Because I don't think that's the point. No. Like he, it's clearly not very good because it didn't get made. You know what I mean? So like they're not unaware of the fact that it's like not, it wasn't. Yeah, it's gr- promise. It wasn't yeah. great. Um, it was if you if you're focusing just on the performance of those songs, then you're focusing on the raw the wrong things. It, you're because fo- the movie is about the relationships. Well, it's about relationships, but it's also about growth. Yeah, you know what exactly. I mean. Both like, as a person but, but and no, as an artist. Well, well, the reason I say relationships is because all of Larson's growth, because he's kind of like a hateable, dickish character throughout that like that first two acts. And it is through his growth um, with Michael and with Susan, mm-hmm. you know, because ship that he kind of like finds his place. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, like Susan moves on to other stuff, and he realizes that like he's focused too much on his own personal nonsense with Michael, and mm-hmm. like realizing Michael has serious things. And that's that's the thing is like that's what works here is like it is about growth, but all that growth is centered upon like. Bigger things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's got nothing to do with the musical. Um, the musical is just a part of his life. Um, I'm surprised you didn't. Where'd you, where'd you think Tick Tick Boom was going to show up on that? I had no idea. I no. thought it lower. No. no. I thought it was going to be in your top 10, but like not. I grappled with my. So 10. I literally, moving into your number one, um, I grappled. That these two flip back and forth. See, it's the thing. In my in part of my overzagging, I you know is the stuff that we were really into when we talked about it, and I just assumed that as part of the overzagging, that nine days would be like, this is a great movie, but like it's not this and this type of thing. No, it's still it's still part of my big four, but like I'll talk about my nine days experience first, and then yeah. we go into yours. Uh, so like the nine days experience for me was like part of this big four. Um. He'll always forget the first movie connected with it. But Portrait of a Lady on Fire, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of ending things nine days or like the big three. Mm-hmm. There's a fourth movie that I always forget when we talk about the Step Brothers. I wish. Um, but I guess what's interesting about nine days is I think nine days is this miraculous movie. That exist when all parties come together and they look at one person. This one person's like, this is the movie I want to make. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, yes, we're going to make that movie. Um, and it it works on all those levels. But the person I was at the beginning of the year who like looked at that movie, I was like, yes, this is the movie I... This is the movie that define, partially defines me. Mm-hmm. As a over like overarching narrative, I guess, mm-hmm. um, isn't me anymore. Mm. Um, but I still like look at this movie going like this movie's fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. This movie like every intention that it's an Oda and everyone involved in it was working towards doing they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I think if I looked at this more objectively, like if I looked at this from an objective standpoint, purely like taking myself out of it, 
Um, I put Tragedy Macbeth at three, Nine Days still at two, and then Power of the Dog on one. Because mm. I think, I, I seriously think Nine Days has such extreme control over what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like what I want or what I'm expecting in the movie now. Not what I'm expecting, but like what resonates with me is different from the beginning of the year versus now. Mm-hmm. Like the, the person I was who looked at nine days and was like, yeah, this is hitting me mm-hmm. isn't where I am anymore, but it's still fucking a masterful movie. And, uh, uh no, I, I actually, I'd put nine days above power of the dog. Cause I think at Denota is, this is a passion project for him. So it's, it's personal to them. Mm-hmm. And it has that control, but it's just like, it's not necessarily where I am anymore. Mm-hmm. That's where it's like number two. Because I think this is a perfectly controlled, emotionally destructive, <laughs> destructive in like the best way possible uh-huh. movie. But um, it's it's not the Mario I was a year ago. Mm. I don't, remember, I don't know what the fourth movie is. What do I kind of want to think that like Will Forte's in it? Is Will Forte? No, it's not Will Forte. It's, 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 it's something. I will find the episode. I think the I mentioned Gruber. it in the Nine Days episode. Um, and, but the big three are Portrait of Lady on Fire. I mean, really, the, the three movies are Portrait of Lady on Fire, Nine Days, and I'm thinking of ending things. Because like, that was where I was. At the time, yeah. In my headspace. For stupid fucking reasons. Well idiot um but it is yeah no i'm that, not gonna belabor this point because we've talked about this movie like a whole bunch of times um but you haven't like, and, you haven't like dwelled it like we've been like well, holding off dwell there's into it. there's not like a ton of like to to delve into at this point anymore um i think that so through the course of doing this podcast i've kind of learned a lot myself about myself both as like a consumer of art and um just as a person and um, I've been uh, doing a lot of things, like, you know, uh, getting my uh, master's in creative writing and uh, teaching and reading books and thinking about um, the way that art functions and um, thinking about myself and where I am as a person in relation to, in writing a lot, just like writing a ton of my own stuff and writing about other people's stuff. Um, and... Over the course of that time, I have come to, I don't know, closure is like the wrong word, but I've processed a lot of things that like I was having trouble processing um, through my novel, through um, uh, other things I've been writing about, through things I've been talking about. Um, and I kind of have come to see nine days as like an ending of, of certain things. So in the same way that Portrait of Lady on Fire has become your number one, I don't know if it's still your number one movie. It is. Um, yeah. I think Nine Days is probably going to be, would be my number one pivotal film. Um, if we redid the list, if we redid the list this year, it would um, supplant Synecdoche, New York, which would throw everything in kind of like a weird, um, my list has become a hellscape in that context, I guess. Um, and I think it's because this movie functions both on a, an emotional level and a visceral level. So um, the visceral stuff that I'm talking about is both metaphorical, it is um sensual um it is uh subcontextual i think that there's so much going on here whether or not ed Zenoda is aware of it um doesn't matter um i think it's there 
Um, and I think so. That's the subcontextual stuff. I think the visceral stuff is related to the stuff that we talked about with my um, my, uh, uh, my 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 best moments of the year. Um, all of those things have a central context to them. Um, you know, uh, Emma is imploring Will to eat a peach um, and to pay attention to the things that are like around him. Listen to laughter. Um, Maria is feeling those pedals. She's feeling that wind. She's feeling the hug. Uh, Will's touch. She's listening to his song. Uh, Mike is feeling like the sand underneath his feet and like the water on his feet. Um, he's hearing the sounds and the waves and all that other stuff. Um, and then on an emotional level, um, it's about a person who is broken. Um, and his intention was never to be broken. Um, Keo, when he first saw him, thought he had like the best chance of being something significant. And what does it mean to be a significant person? Um, is it like that? Never at no point in this movie does it say like if you've accomplished something um, significant, then you've accomplished something. Getting married, becoming a police officer, uh, you know, performing in a concerto. Um, Will kind of believes these things to be. Um, at one point believes them to be or some of these things to be accomplishments um, but in reality they are not um, in a lot of ways the best thing I can say about this movie from computer screen and I've talked about this I watched this on my computer on my chest at like 3 in the morning um, I thought it was a 3 and a half hour movie and I thought I could watch I was willing to watch it forever um to my TV screen, to my wall and the projector, to going to see it at a, a movie theater. Um, I just grew more and more close to this movie's nature and what it was, not even what it was trying to say, because you didn't really care what it was trying to say um, on, a, on a one level. It was just, it, it's like a perfect visceral film experience in the sense that it's only trying to do what it's, uh, it knows what it wants to do, and it's it, it knows how it's gonna. It needs to. It needs. It knows what it needs to do to 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 get there emotionally and narratively and all that other stuff. Um, but it's also like I'm not sure where I go. So, Synecdoche, New York was a movie about asking questions, and Ghost World is a movie about asking questions, and I think this movie answers a lot of those questions, in the sense that it is about relationships it's about appreciating the things that you have around you it's about like taking your time and appreciating your your uniqueness about appreciating the uniqueness of everybody else around you um about the things around you the foods around you the sounds around you the like the the feelings around you um it's like a poem in that sense. And then in the center of it is Will, who is this like horribly broken person for any number of reasons that like we will never fully understand. Um, because the movie doesn't need to tell us. We just kind of know through his actions and through his, you know, what he says. Um, and he, for this movie to work, he needs to grow. And that growth doesn't need to be. Um, he's not getting out of this room, and 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 Emma at the end of it still goes away. 
but he for a moment gets to remember what it means to be a person and it's not the tr- it's not just the tragedy it's all the other things up until the point so one of the beautiful things about the movie is that the things that like he feels he finds most tragic about his life is a thing that also kind of like makes him human for a moment and the thing that he finds the most pleasure in at the end of it and i think that's kind of the way the movie is not suggesting that like all the things, all the bad things that happen to us are really good because they confirm that we're human. It's that like all the bad things that happen to us confirm that we're human, and being human, and being having the opportunity to live in this world um, is worth something. And I think Will is determined in the beginning of the movie to say that it's not worth anything. And so he picks Cain because he has the best opportunity of fighting off all of the terrible things that happen in the world. And in the end, um, that doesn't change. And I think it's one of the, the great things about the movie is that like the idea of picking Cain is still the right decision in his mind. Um, still maybe the right decision in the movie. It's, it's right, because it's, it's, it's the right decision for him. Because... And he probably will have... Letting the... Emma exist is just another Amanda. Well... Potentially. Potentially. I don't... I think the point is that, like... Because the, I, I always thought, like, the idea of Amanda being, like, maybe too overwhelmed by the world she's in. And well, she... Emma could... That could happen as well. I think more... I think it's more... It could definitely happen, but I think the... the and I'm sorry, I'm picking at your table. I think the more... Well, the beautiful thing about the movie is that... He didn't the, pick. The little film he table? didn't pick Emma. Yeah, it's gold. I'm picking off this, the gold leaf. <laughs> um, he didn't pick Emma this time, but he might pick Emma next time. And so, at some point, there will be more Emmas. There will be more Amandas. There's the idea. Well, that Well, I mean, there's that. There's Amanda that line. There's sick. that line that also like is is thrown out there by Keo um, Benedict Wong, who says like, "What did we do to make it here?" Mm-hmm. Which says like, who knows how these spirits kind of, which I like. Like there's there's that like, really big world building going on with it. So, my question, I guess, to you, I, I would say this movie is just as impactful for you as Portrait of Lady on Fire was for me. Um, Portrait of Lady on Fire, I guess, worked for me in the sense of it answered questions. Um, does Nine Days work for you because it ends up not caring about the questions you might have? No, because I don't. I think what Nine Days confirmed for me is that I don't really have any questions anymore. Um, it, I'm. I'm a basic bitch. No, it's just it's. No, I'm. I'm really happy being a basic bitch. Okay. Um, I have processed a lot of. I think what it says. What it said to me was I've. I've. And again, it doesn't. I could have said this to everybody. It just says to me is that I've processed a lot of things. Um, that I've been thinking about my whole life. And so one of the things it asks me to do is to focus on the visceral, to focus on the sensual, to focus on those little things, to take, a, to take a second and think about the things that aren't, that you maybe take for granted, which is like a stupid thing to say, but like, I don't, I don't really feel, I don't really feel any way about myself anymore. I get myself really well. And I know what I want. And I know what I'm after. And like life is still kind of hard sometimes, but not because I'm struggling with anything like in like interior. 
You know what I mean? Like everything's become very exterior. And I think it was one of the movies that if it has like that kind of existential value to me, it has, it defined for me that like I could, that like I could stop. Well, it's, it's nice. Because I get it on that. I, I, I get it on a different level than like I got Synecdoche, New York at the time, which was Synecdoche, New York was like defined my questions and like this was just like oh you've answered those questions so you don't well, have to worry about them. Anymore. It's also nice because Nine Days is so tactile. Oh, because sure. everything about it is a sense of any questions it has, any answers it has. All those things kind of rely on something you can touch and grab and yeah. grab a hold of. And if it, you can't, then it, it's not interested in those questions. It's not interested in things you can't. Well. So it, I would argue is that it's, it is interested in those questions, but it's not it's not just those questions. But it's, it's also gonna, not trying to answer those questions or provide solace for those No, it's going to tie them. Everything the – beautiful, the beautiful thing about this movie is that everything functions as a metaphor. So like it's – or um, a symbol. So like a leaf or a flower or a petal or wind blowing or a song or like an experience or whatever is really just a kind of um, – representation of the general experience of being a person you know what i mean so like every time i touch a thing i'm not just touching a thing i'm here experiencing yeah there's there's um and that's and that's like the movie is very it's like saying is like you have the opportunity to be and what does being mean and for will the beginning of the movie being means experiencing pain and by the end of the movie being means experiencing pain but also acknowledging for the briefest of moments you were not in pain and what does that what does that mean and what was the what was the context of not in pain yeah that's that's what resonates with me is the fact that like looking at i'm thinking of ending things being like that movie of a manifest of like the things that could have been but never were and so you just gave up versus like portrait lady on fire which is that kind of movie of like fucking go for it and do the things you need to do mm-hmm. um, and if you fail whatever versus nine days of like the person who does the things and fails to do them and holds them against themselves is the real loss instead of just acknowledging like you tried sort of thing or you 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 made an effort to live Right. It's worthwhile, and that's what that's what I love about yeah. Nine Days is like that's what I took from it is like, like obviously Will is kind of that person who did not like because we look at Will as an unreliable narrator, uh, narrator, um, in the sense that he he doesn't truly appreciate the fact that he lived and had all these experiences until the end right. with him and Emma, and that's why he says thank you, and that's what was a masterful scene there because you don't know if she's gone. Like, when the shot's just on him, you don't know if she's disappeared mm-hmm. at that point. Um, but, you, I mean, you have to assume that she's she did, because it doesn't seem like that kind of movie where it'd be like, oh, no, you get a second chance. No, no, yeah. No, or, of course. And you but are you don't, also you don't, you don't know. What I mean is, like, you don't know if she's there when he says thank you to her. Right. But it's the type of movie that says, like, she's very much gone by the time he has the opportunity to say thank you. Right. And which is the thing, I guess, with me is, like, it, it felt so... Oh, uh, ultimately bitter sweet that like i had like that's that's where i almost say like it's 
and it's hard. Like this year was hard for me for for movies because I was like ultimately looking at at movies that made me feel good. Is the fact that like Nine Days still has this kind of like melancholy. Mm. I don't want anymore. See, that's movies. the funny thing is that like when I saw it in theaters in August or August July whenever, um, I think I may have texted you about it or I may have mentioned it on the podcast. I just kind of like immediately started tearing up and like that just happened to me through the whole movie and they were just kind of like happy tears and I thought it was like the perfect representation of what this movie means to me which is like um, and I thought it aligned perfectly to the movie I was like oh this movie is real like this is a real thing absolutely and so seeing it was the same thing as like laughing with Kane or eating a peach or like doing all that other stuff like you know reciting those lines from Song of Myself again like going to see this movie was um the fact that like it was it was like a real thing, it wasn't this kind of, I don't know. The screener process is is interesting and cool and good, but it's also kind of, I don't know. It feels very temporary because in like a week that screener link is going to go away, um, and like I will not have watched Catch the Fair One, and I will not have watched like Blue Bayou because I don't care, um, and I will not have watched. Test pattern, and I will not have watched like whatever Queen of Glory is. Um, and I'm fine, and I'm and but I'm not saying that like I'm sad about it. I'm fine about it. But like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's gonna pass me by, and this thing, uh, or even stuff that like I watch like screeners of like Ascension or um, uh, Sweet Thing or. Um, couple of other movies i can't think of the names now like pete maman or no, no, no that's i mean that's different okay. that's a different thing um no no there's like little stuff where i'm just kind of like oh that was oh holler was another movie that i watched which is okay it was an indie it was an indie it reminded me of like the 90s a little bit it was very obvious it had an interesting cast um queen shavenish no it was not as emotionally intense as or good <laughs> as queen shaven but what i'm saying is that like i'm gonna watch that movie and it's gonna go away and i'm gonna feel nothing yeah is that like and and it wasn't even like a thing like i owned it for like a little bit or like i spent money on it or like i watched it on purpose like someone fed it to me and i was like oh oh okay i'll eat it because it's free and it's here and like no one else can see it and that's what i find fascinating about nine days and nine days kind of works for me in the sense of 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 being a closure to this because like this year for me was i don't know maybe like a recognition that I don't have as much emotional nuance as I wanted myself to have or whatever, mm-hmm. where I just kind of like sat there going like, no, I want, I'm the type of person who, who is exhilarated and driven by like those simple pleasures. And mm-hmm. like, I have an absolute respect and, and love for those movies doing more and asking more. But like, I don't know. I, I think like looking at, I'm thinking of ending things has this really simple sort of like state of mind and portrait of lady on fire very much has this very direct. Oh yeah. Straightforward state of mind. Whereas nine days is this really complex sort of nuanced focus of, of thought and identity. And. But it's doing a lot less. No, it's doing a lot less, but. Like I almost, and this is, it's almost a criticism of me as a person, but not really, is, is the fact that I could look at nine days and I'm like, yeah, I get this intellectually and like, this is what I want to be. And like, there's a lot of like, 
depth of character and depth of personality and depth of like how I approach the world or how I want to think I approach the world. But what worked for me in this film in comparison to everything else is just like, I ended up leaving it going like, I'm not that like it, but it it's so masterful at presenting people as they are mm. presenting people as human beings and presenting the nuance and character of, of a person like Will is, is grappling against eternal forces. Um, and I kind of looked at that going like, yeah, that's me. But now coming back to a year later, I'm like, that's not me. I'm, I'm much simpler than that. And that's what's, what's amazing about, about movies is the, the fact that like I can look at something like Tick, Tick, Boom, which is spoon fed to me, but like fucking fall in love with it and, and be so close to it because of the fact that something like Nine Days exists where I look at it with a little more nuance and a little more depth and a little more um there, there's there's more fractures in personality i guess does that make sense mm-hmm. um and go like this isn't necessarily me mm-hmm. this isn't you know this this is, i don't hew close to this because i'm much simpler of a person Mm. Um, but it still is, is a testament to how strong of a voice and character that Nine Days has. Um, yeah, and it's it's wholly it seems weirdly unique. You know, regardless of whether or not it's doing things that like other movies may have done or has other ideas that like other movies may have had. Um, that doesn't. But it's 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 it's. At its essence, like an emotional experience, like that movie is not trying to be anything besides like a real saddling and next to you and being like, "How do you think about things?" sort of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's um, an extraordinary movie, and um, I don't know. I I'm surprised feel... that was your number two, and Tom and Jerry was your number one. It's got my name in it. No, oh. I'm a super narcissist. That was weird. It's about Chloe Grace Mortiz and and Colin Jost that you love so much about Tom and Jerry. It's Louis Pena that I love so much. Mm. And he says when he says there's Michael an animal Pena. tornado, Michael Pena. Was Louis Guzman in that movie? I don't think so. Oh man, that movie. We that need to have more Louis Guzman and Michael Pena in movies together. I forgot about that movie. Maybe Luis Guzman could take Evangeline Lilly's place in the next Ant-Man and the Wasp. Ooh. That would actually be really funny. Like Luis Guzman and Michael Pena playing off each other. Like Luis Guzman's like, you're a what? And he's like, a Scientologist. And he's just like, no. Luis Guzman's like, I'm the Wasp. <laughs> he's he's like, like, what? No, no, you're not. And he's like, yes, I am. And Michael Douglas just keeps calling him my daughter. He's like, sure thing. <laughs> yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer is just really close there. Yeah. I love it. She's like, how do I end up back in the quantum realm? Where did it? If we're scoring points, by the way, I definitely won in the prediction category. Yes, you did. You you got a total of two two points ish, I guess. I don't know how. How are we awarding points? Well, if you got it correct at number one, you get five points, which I did. If you got it correct at number two, would be four. Then oh, I see. Two, then one. So you're one off on nine days, so I'd give you two points because mm. it was at the three spot. Gotcha. But I think I... Uh, it's okay. I Again, I, I admit it. I overzagged. You zagged. You zagged so much. And I was very much uh, with the opposite of zag. 
zigging. <laughs> I think straight line. I straight lined the entire shit out of this. Kind of. The harder they fall, that's kind of the weird one. But the harder they fall, I'm not like overly well, we, concerned about. I, I, and I could have. I boiling point and sensor was yeah. I was effusive about them, but like I don't know, they just didn't sit. Well, see, that's the thing. Uh, we, I we can't know about each other. Is like what the other. We talked about this like uh, I don't know four hours ago. I have no idea what you were doing, and you have no idea what I was doing on the interim. Like since we last talked it's about a movie. A lot of weed. Right, but I didn't know that you were like falling out of love with like Boiling Point, which we spent oh, no, literally an hour and a half still, talking about. I still like love both those movies. It's just like I did not like go like, oh, I need to watch these repeatedly, mm. and I ended up watching a lot of my top three repeatedly. So you're allowed. Thank you for the permission. <laughs> if you would like permission to do something, you <laughs> can tweet us at the Joe Rogan Experience while we say the N word and claim. Does he we say the N word? Yeah, he he's like. Well, I did a podcast for 12 years, and I said the N-word a couple times, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we've done this podcast for five years and probably have almost as much hours as him. And we literally only cut our podcast when I start talking about how much I want to sleep with a particular actress, which is problematic. But not Joe Rogan problematic. But not like you know. I love when he was just like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll try to have like more conflict or... um, uh, contrasting voices on. I was like, you're still telling people like to take like this shit. Could you imagine if your entire life you looked like a glands of a cock? Hmm. I mean, my if pro- I looked like a glands of a cock, I'm gonna be honest with like you, like Joe Rogan. I'm gonna <laughs> say this. This is now Mario has hit the drunk point. Luckily, after yeah, after we're done with everything else, but he does look like a glands of a penis my problem with joe which is awesome my problem with joe rogan which everyone else is like oh he's such a great interviewer no you know, he's, he's not he's terrible he is a fucking terrible interviewer he's awful oh man who's a really great interviewer uh who's a really great interviewer is sean evans from hot ones the guy does like the fucking chicken oh the buffalo wings thing. yeah he's so good yeah like and he's probably problematic probably has something in his closet he hasn't shown it yet but he probably does right we have something in our closet i'm sure what is it oh well, right you're a net you're a net i forgot well my thing in my yeah well, no, <laughs> your net baby is in the closet my thing in my closet is like i want to fuck everything um but but like everything so it's indiscriminate um that's nice <laughs> but like, he's a good interviewer. Joe Rogan's a fucking... T- he's terrible. I'm not sure what everyone's talking about. He's like, awful. Like, literally, I could replace Joe Rogan with, sh- like, Shane McMahon or Vince McMahon. And both, like, Vince McMahon is probably just as racist as Joe Rogan. Probably more so. He's Shane definitely probably more less, so. Probably, Shane McMahon's maybe less. But uh, Joe Rogan sucks and not a good interviewer. Well, I remember... He I got fucking Elon Musk high and was like, let's talk about how high we are. I've talked about... I've talked about this. I feel like you've talked about this on this yeah, who, podcast. Who and maybe really I haven't. Quickly, before I forget this joke, yeah. who doesn't get Elon Musk that high and go like, what the fuck are you naming your kids, you fucking beast? He's like, I don't know. It's not my kid. Um, also, like, did Amber Heard shit in your bed? Like, those are the first two questions I ask to right. hi, Elon and Musk. he's like, oh, you know, please stop following me on the internet. Um, I've told the story. I feel like I've told the story in this podcast. It's not a story because it didn't happen to me. But I, I was very excited for Joe Rogan's, like, three-hour interview with Chuck Polinick because Chuck Polinick, the guy that wrote Fight Club, yeah. he is... He just wants to talk did, about... Did I give you the look of... I don't know who Chuck Polinick is. You did. Oh. Um, no, I gave you the look been, of like... 
Why are Chuck Palahniuk did yeah. an interview with Joe Rogan. He Why? did, and so he did two. He actually did two interesting interviews like around the same time. He was on the Brady Snellis podcast where he yelled at Brady Snellis because Brady Snellis just wanted to talk about like why like everyone is so against Trump. And Chuck Palahniuk was really awesome. He's like, you know why I did this podcast? And he's like, Brady's like, no, why? And he's like, because I want to hawk a book. He's like, I don't want to be a part of this political discourse. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of your like cultural shit. I don't want to be. A, I just want to sell books. And so he was on the Brett, he's on the Joe Rogan podcast, and it's like going the same way. He's like talking about creative writing. He just wants to talk about creative writing, and I'm just like, yes, this guy's talking about creative writing, and he's not like my favorite writer, but he like is willing to talk at length about creative writing. And so he talks about how he like presented the story to of guts, um, you know, guts from haunted. What guts is from haunted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he gets, you know, the guy gets his like yeah, 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 shit. Yeah. Um, he presented well, the story of Guts himself, yeah. from his um, to his book, his uh, uh, writers group, and they like threw him out of the writers group because they were like, "This is too much." Even after Chuck Palahniuk, like he's he's a he's known still author Chuck Palahniuk, right? Had... So he presents Guts, and they throw him out of the writers group because it's too much. And literally, it's all Joe much. all Joe Rogan could talk about for the whole rest of the interview was like, "I want to go back to this throwing you out of the writers group. How could they do that?" And Chuck Palahniuk's like, "Yeah, I don't know. It was too much." Let's talk about this other stuff. And he's like, I don't know. Hey, guys, it's free speech. You're a writer. Writer's going to do stuff. Like, and he's just like, I don't care. No one cares a fucking shit about it. We all understand what free speech is. Yeah, Chuck I can say like, whatever. No one's having me arrested. They just threw me out of the fucking writer's group. Yeah, I'm Chuck fine. Chuck literally says that because it's interesting. They got thrown out of a writer's group while being Chuck Pollock. Right. And Joe Rogan's just like, I need to only talk about like the free speech aspect well, you know of why? this over and over and over again. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Joe Rogan scratches his hands on the floor quite often because he's a knuckle-dragging fucking little cock licker. So. <laughs> but, no, one has like, I take that back. He's, I don't want to use the word cock licker. He does not want to lick a cock, but he's licking something he doesn't like because hmm. he's a sad, like pathetic little asshole. Like a vegetable? Probably. Like COVID vaccination? Yeah. He's he's licking a <laughs> Pfizer booster. No, that guy's fucking been vaccinated a hundred times. Oh, you know he has. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to, if you're Joe Rogan and just like want to have a conversation about this, like uh, email. Yeah. Literally, if Joe Rogan tweets us at Film Pivotal to be on this podcast, I'm good. I'm not going to do it. No. I will literally just be like, hey, if I lick the top of your head... Will it give you an orgasm? Because that's Ugh. where you know do the ferulium is. Don't do that. Because he looks like a fucking glands. Um, Joe Rogan, your head looks like a goddamn penis. That is an email pivotal podcast. Not even like a good-looking penis. Or good pivotal. Not even like a Sean Lawson penis. Like an ugly penis. Like a Manuel Ferreira penis before like he like stretched that shit out. This is a good ending to the podcast. Oh yeah. You good? I was I was saving it. Yeah. All right, I'm let's, good. Go, let's go eat pizza. No, no, keep going. Uh, no, what else is there else to say? No, we, we gotta we gotta finish the outro. Go drink beers? No, you got you got it. Oh, this, tweet us at I said that. You said the tweet. Oh, I, I said, said the tweet. Email. Did you? Oh, did you say go to fun podcast? Yeah. I was too focused on my joke. Yeah. But so you can uh, go drink beers and watch movies. Like the novice. Talk to you. Which I did Uh, Yeah, eventually.